Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. When we read English, we like to read, uh, have a certain f- flow to our the way we read. We like to have a, a subject, verb, object, and then anything else, the direct objects follow that. And the writers of this follow the more Latin version where it just doesn't matter. Uh, for example, if I say, um, you know, to the store Susie ran to get food, it, it's kind of jumbled. We like to say, Susie ran to the store to get food. So what I did, I arranged some of this so that it, it has that subject, a verb, or subject, verb, object, and then the rest of it uh, after direct objects. and. and clauses after that. Uh, we're going to look at, the, well, let me just go ahead and read the whole thing. I'll read the modern version here. Uh, it says, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and the power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. So this, just by way of review, what we've been looking at last couple weeks is what we call natural or special revelation, natural or general revelation. That revelation that is given uh, to mankind through the world that we live in, through the universe, through the creation, uh, through ourselves, our own bodies. David looks at his hand and says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, And through a a natural sense that we have of God's law that is given to us, to our conscience. Paul speaks of this we saw in Romans 2 where it talks about the Gentiles who have the law written in their heart can demonstrate that law to a certain extent to even judge the Jews who have it written and don't actually keep the law. So there's different forms that God gives this general or natural revelation. Remember, general speaks to the idea that it's to everybody. We speak of something in a general way. Everybody has it. Uh, everybody has it to the same degree. And natural simply means that it comes through nature, through us, through conscience, through something, uh, the structure of the world. And we also saw that, that this knowledge is not enough to bring man to salvation. The goal that God wants to accomplish with mankind is to bring a certain number of people uh, to a saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's what the scripture is for in that first a line there. The scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and fallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So that is the goal that God has for mankind. And natural revelation doesn't accomplish that. It simply shows all mankind that there is a God, that he is a powerful God, he is a a wise God and an eternal God. And what man, man does with that is they see, oh yes, there is a God, but instead of attributing the glory that is revealed in creation to the true God, what do they do? They turn to idols and say, the idol made me, uh, this stone made me. Uh, they worship the actual parts of creation. The Egyptians worship the sun. Uh, they worship frogs. They had a whole host of idols that they worship. So instead of giving that that uh, worship to God, the, the source of the glory, they give it to animals, as Paul says, to, to even to creepy things, which to a Jew would have been unbelievable to worship, a, a bug that crawls around, and Egyptians did worship things like scarabs and beetles. So uh, they, they take that glory that is clearly revealed through heaven, 
Instead of calling out to the one who made these things, they turn their worship to idols, to mankind, to uh, animals, to objects in the heavens instead of the true God. And that then in Romans 1 leads to the depravity of man going down to not just uh, disobeying him, but taking creation and completely flipping it up on its, up on its end through homosexuality and trestvitism and, and stuff like that. So uh, again, the it's there, it, it judges mankind, but it's not enough to save him, to bring him to faith and obedience. So the scripture is necessary to do that. And in the section three that I started underlining there where it says, therefore, it, because this revelation is not enough, because it's not able to bring man to a saving knowledge and bring him to faith and obedience, therefore, something else had to be done. And that's what the, our forefathers described here. The Lord was pleased to reveal himself and declare his will to his church at different times and various ways. So what God did beyond this creation was take certain information, certain revelation, and it, which it defines as declaring his will and gave that information to his church. Now notice it says here, it's given to who? To the church. It's not given to the world. It's given specifically to the church to bring the church to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And that, that's kind of hard for us to think. That we, we want everything to be universal. But if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, uh, who did God speak to? Well, he, he starts, it seems he speaks to everybody. But then that focus begins to narrow. It narrows with Noah. God picked Noah to reveal his truth to and to help deliver the world. After Noah came, God chose another man. He chose Abraham. And so this focus now becomes this revelation being given not to everybody, but to specific people for specific purposes. And those promises that we have today as the church were originally given to the person of Abraham. So it's to the church. Uh, now, the Gentiles are involved, but that comes later after God spoke to the Israelites. Now the gospel is being opened up to the world, to the Gentiles, but it's still a restricted revelation. It's still only given to the church. The difference is that the church now, or the, the Gentiles, are able to come into the church without going through the channel of Judaism. We see this in the book of Acts. Every place the, the gospel went acts, there's a pattern that is followed. Uh, the gospel comes, it's preached, people believe, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that is signified by speaking in tongues. And I told the apostles, now these people have the Spirit. These people now are part of the church. In, in Acts 2, what is the promise that is given to the church at that time? It's the Spirit. They see the Spirit come, they think the time is here, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are here, prophecies being fulfilled, the church now is beginning. And we go from Jerusalem, we go to the outlying areas in Judea, we go to Samaria, and we go to the Gentiles. And each step, that same pattern occurs. Gospels preached, the Spirit comes, okay, they now have the gospel. They now are part of the church. Now that wasn't a problem when you had Jerusalem and Judea. But once that started happening in, in Samaria, now the, these dogs, these Samarians, who the Jews wouldn't even touch, now they're getting the gospel. They're getting a spirit. They're coming into the church. Now, what's, what's going on here? And then Peter goes further out to the Gentiles in Acts, was it 10? And receives that vision. And now goes into a Gentile's house and gives the gospel. What happens in Cornelius' house? Spirit comes. 
baptizes them in the spirit, they speak in tongues. That's evidence now that these Gentiles have come into the church. And that was very difficult for the Jews to understand. In fact, when Peter came back to Jerusalem, remember the Jews challenged him. They said, no, what are you doing, Peter, giving the gospel to these Gentiles? And so they, they argued with Peter. They, they disputed with him that this should not be happening. Let's see. And so they disputed about it. Peter uh, talked about the, uh, what actually happened in these places. And it was obvious to the people that the Spirit had actually come to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans. Therefore, it was God was legitimately opening up the church to these other people. And remember what the response was to that. It says they listened to him. And it says they quieted down. They stopped their chatter, their complaints. They quieted down and glorified God because God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. So now this revelation is no longer Israel's. It's now the churches, and it's being given to Gentiles to bring them into the church. So there is, a, 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 again, a universal outreach of the gospel, but it's still the church that takes that word and goes and preaches it and brings Gentiles and other groups of people into the church. So, again, it's a message for, that the church has, that the church uses, that is designed to build up and to strengthen the church. Any questions or comments? Now, so, if you look at the next paragraph... We, or next sentence, we see that this word was God was pleased to reveal and declare his will to the church different times in various ways. What does that remind you of? At different times in various ways. Any particular scripture? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, where God in the past spoke to our fathers uh, at various times and manners or different ways, but now has spoken to us to his son. That's what they're referring to here. In the past, there are many, many different ways that God spoke to his people. Uh, he had visions, he had dreams, there were ecstatic experiences, uh, there were prophecies, there, there was direct dictation where God said, pick up a pen and write this. There were times where God wrote it himself and gave it to us. So all these different ways uh, that God spoke in the past to mankind, uh, now that has been narrowed down to one specific way. And that way we're going to see is the scriptures. It says, the Lord then put this revelation completely in writing to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. So God spoke this revelation and as he spoke it, he put it into words. He put it into writing. And again, that was done for a very specific purpose that was designed for, to, first of all, to preserve and propagate the truth better. So he wanted to preserve it, to keep it, and he wanted to propagate it. Now, th this is um, the question, how did this happen? How did God preserve and propagate the truth? Um, it's kind of interesting. It, it was, you wouldn't think it would happen this way, but what, what the way it happened was a, a good illustration of it is when I was a, first became a believer, I, I got a hold of a book on the, uh, how the gospel, how Bibles were being smuggled into Russia. This is back when Russia was still a communist country and it was illegal to own Bibles. And it was this group of, of men and women who, who smuggled Bibles into Russia. And the, the stories were just fascinating, all the, the risk and adventure that was there, getting these Bibles into these believers. And it told this story of this one young lady um, in her early teens who became a believer and walked about four or five miles to a Bible study in an underground church. Again, this is Russia where, you know, it's freezing half the year. 
And so she'd walk this distance and go to this Bible study and would ask the pastor if she could borrow his Bible for the night and bring it back the next day. And his pastor said, you know, Bibles were rare back then and expensive, hard to get. So he agreed to give it to her, provided she had it back the next morning. So this girl would take the Bible and the next morning she'd walk those four or five miles, bring the Bible back to this man and go back home. She did that once a week uh, for months at a time. And the pastor finally decided to ask, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And she said, well, I, I don't have a Bible. So what I do is I take your Bible home and I copy as much of it as I can before I fall asleep. And then I, I come back and bring it to the next day and start my day to go back to work. And, and you think that that's a pretty amazing thing to happen, to do. But that's how hungry they were for God's word. Well, well, th think of, of a, a church getting a letter from Paul. Okay, this to Paul had, had been there, ministered to the church, maybe planted the church. They hadn't heard anything from Paul for two or three years. And suddenly a letter comes. Again, letters were rare. And some people never got a letter their whole life. If you wanted a letter, uh, somebody had to mail that to you, which meant somebody had to find somebody who was going to that city, spend all the money necessary <laughs> to purchase what's the writing material, and then find a person going there, give it to them with the hopes it would actually arrive there to you. There's no mail system. Um, so again, writing was unusual, letters were very rare. So this church, after two or three years of absence, gets a letter from Paul. Imagine the, the thrill, the Apostle Paul has written us a letter. And then they get up and they read the letter. And maybe another church hears that, oh, this church got a letter from Paul, what do they do? Well, they copy the letter and give it to that church. Let's say there's people in the church that want that letter. So they, they write another copy, give it to that person. You can imagine in a, a very small time, a, a matter of months, that letter would have been written and spread to hundreds of different people, churches and people within those churches. A very short time it would have been distributed over a large geographical area. Well, that's pretty much how the New Testament was preserved. There was no magical spiritual preservation, no angels coming down and protecting the text and, and making carbon copies of it so that we could be sure what we have is the true text. It was done by a natural means. People simply writing it because they wanted a letter from the Apostle Paul. They wanted to have it to read for themselves. So that, that's how the scriptures were propagated. That's how they were duplicated and spread throughout the church. Again, it seems like a, a very barbaric way to do it, but the amazing thing, and we're going to look more into this as we, as we progress, we're going to look at some of these issues of, of the, how it was preserved, how we can know that what we have represents the scriptures. It's just amazing to see that God used natural means to do this and how well he did it with ways that we would think inferior. You think he would wait till there was a printing press and then decide to preserve the scripture. No, he didn't. He used the natural means that men have to preserve. The same way anything else was preserved, uh, Homer's Odyssey or another book was preserved. So it's better to preserve and to propagate the truth. Now, um, if we don't write the scriptures down, if we don't write words down, how else do we propagate them? What's another way that things get propagated from one generation to the other? Oral traditions, yeah. Now, th there is some evidence that for a short period of time, the Bible was orally transmitted. For example, a Christ spoke. Uh, he gave a sermon. Uh, he gave lessons or instruction, maybe privately to the disciples or to large crowds. There weren't uh, people following him around writing down what he said. Most of what he said was simply remembered by the people who heard him, and that was preserved by them in their own minds. And then later, uh, people like the uh, 
evangelists came around, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they collected these, what people had written down or what people had heard orally and to verify these things. So there was a time where it, it shared probably a written tradition as well as an oral tradition until those things could be gathered, the important ones, and put into the books that we have the gospel, called the Gospels today. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. There was a, uh, there's a book we're going to be looking at a little bit later called, um, by a guy named Richard Bachman called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's just a fascinating book. It's written about 15 years ago. And uh, he goes in and shows how the Gospels demonstrate that they were written by people who actually saw these events. And like I said, it's just an amazing book. I, mean, I believed it before I read that book, but he gives this detailed scientific historical evidence to show that the only way he can explain this, and, and Richard Bachman is a secular scholar. I mean, he's a Christian, but he really takes a, a very critical approach to the Bible and tries to prove what the Bible actually claims or what people claim about the Bible. So it's very scholarly, very detailed work, but we'll, we'll take it and try to simplify his conclusions to show what I'm talking about here. But, but he, um, he cites these studies where people uh, anthropologists try to test oral tradition to see if it actually does preserve things. Remember the, the Norman Rockwall painting or the drawing where you've got some lady talking on the phone and she tells something to somebody and then it gets propagated throughout different people, 10 or 15 different people. And then the last person is the person who originated the story and she's hearing it and is just shocked like this. In other words, as things get passed through time and through different people, the story is completely changing and corrupted. The question is, does oral tradition do that? If a, a group of people are, are passing down their traditions, their, their theology, their religion through centuries of time, do those stories change? And Bachman gives very good evidence that they really are very good at preserving traditions, stories, in a very limited context. And what they did, they had anthropologists go in and study the, these, these uh, stories, and they're not written down, they're all oral. They're recited orally at different events, uh, ceremonies and stuff. And went back decades later, to listen to the same stories, and they were virtually identical. They may have been words different. Uh, they passed through four or five different shamans or the people that, that cite these stories. And they were, as far as the story goes, they were identical. Maybe a word or two here changed, but it didn't in any way affect the story. Then what they did was they went and they gave up uh, at the same time, they gave different stories to them, new stories, to see if those could be preserved through all this time. And those as well were preserved almost identical. And then they, they told the shaman, well, introduce an error, you know, change this. Let's say, you know, the god wore a, a red coat. You know, change it to a blue coat. And he did that. And there, there was sort of this communal response where the community who knew these stories very well almost rose up in protest and said, no, no. It, it's blue, it's not red. They actually corrected the storyteller when he went off, even on, on a little tiny tangent. They corrected him and brought back the actual story that they were familiar with. So there's this sort of corrective in this storytelling where the people know the story, they're listening to it being repeated, and they're validating that it is the same story that they heard throughout their life. Even little tiny issues of the color of what these men wore was corrected by this community. So the idea that, well, if it's oral, it's going to automatically be corrupted, it just doesn't fit the studies that have been done by anthropologists in these areas. They're very, very well preserved. So oral tradition can work. The problem with oral tradition is once it gets outside of that small community, 
Once it gets spread out of it, then it starts becoming corrupt. So we can imagine a, a small gospel community of believers who heard the words of Christ, who held those words dear in their hearts when the apostles came to collect this information for the gospels and they wanted to verify these truths, there's no reason for these people to have lied or distorted the truth. They would have remembered every word he said and cherished those words and made sure that what the apostles wrote, number one, it matched up with what they'd written and with what they actually had heard. So there's no issue, well, somehow between the, you know, the 30, 40 years before Christ lived and the writing of the gospel, somehow the gospel got corrupted. There's not a shred of evidence for that. In fact, everything points to it actually could have been and really was preserved. And we'll see more about that in the, in the next couple of weeks. Any questions or comments about that? And again, Bachman gives, I mean, just, it's amazing the detail he, he gives is to show, I mean, within like a decade or two that the gospel was actually written within this very, very small uh, time period. It's just amazing. So we'll, we'll have more of that as we progress. I have a question, Jeff. Yeah. You made me think of something as you were talking about this. When the churches received letters from Paul and that, and that sort of thing, did he send them out at similar times or were they staggered? I've never really looked into that. Yeah, he sent them out at different times. Yeah, there's dates that we can pretty much predict within a couple of years, sometimes within a decade of when Paul wrote. We know some he wrote uh, in prison. He writes that he's a prisoner right. of Jesus Christ. So we know there's some debate about when, prison, uh, when he was imprisoned, but uh, we can pretty much know that they were staggered, that he didn't write them all at one time. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, events pass, like he wrote Corinthians, and wrote another letter after Second Corinthians, after First Corinthians. So the Second Corinthians we have is actually Third Corinthians. We just lost the Second Corinthians, and he wrote another one after that. We know that he wrote a, a letter to Laodicea, because in Colossians, he, he actually tells them to give this letter to the Laodiceans, and you take their letter and read it. So yeah, they were staggered. There were letters that were written that were lost. Uh, that we just, the Lord found no reason to preserve them for us. So yeah, they were all, yeah, he just didn't sit down and write all the letters. It, it, events transpired, they needed responses, he would write the letter different times. I, I think our responses now would be like, well, he got a, you know, that, that church got a letter, but we, we didn't. And, and there may have been some of that. I mean, I mean, they, they were, uh, you know, like Rome, he, he wrote to Rome ha having never been there. And here he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he had this big church in the center of Gentile dome, and Paul had never visited. So a lot of people think that the writing of that letter was to say, hey, look, I know you guys, you know, I, I know I'm here for you. I, 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 so. And he knew there were problems in Rome, too, that he addressed were indefinite problems. Anything else? There's a book written by Greg Gilbert. It's called Why Trust the Bible. It has a lot of information you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It goes into a, almost in a scientific proof, but not science. Yeah, uh, yeah. On how things have transferred from the biblical days to our days. In the translations of the Bible, going through the proof that exactly there was a lot of oral tradition and written tradition, the accuracies of them are still there, even though there may be word variant. Yeah, we'll see all that. We're going to get into the, the transmission, um, the propagation in more detail, and what we have today, and how we can can trace that back to the original languages with, with a, a great deal of confidence. A great deal of confidence. So, anything else? Okay. 
Again, therefore the Lord was pleased to reveal himself and declare his will to the church at different times in various ways. The Lord then put this revelation completely into writing to preserve and propagate the truth better. So that was what we just looked at, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world. So it was given to, to confirm the scripture, to preserve it, to spread it, as well as to comfort the church. And I love this phrase here, he wants, God wants the church to be comforted, to know that it does have this revelation, that this revelation is accurate, it is correct, and it is actually from God himself. We don't have to go out and wonder, okay, what about other Bibles? What about other revelation? Is any of this missing? Has God forgotten something? Has man, you know, lost a large portion of the Bible? We're gonna go in a, in a cave sometime and find a big chunk of the scripture that's been lost for 2,000 years. No, the church throughout its history even when the Bible was being debated, even when they were uh, trying to consider what books do we include in the Bible, we'll see more of that when, when we look at canonicity. How did the Bible, the books that we have in the New Testament, become the New Testament? It wasn't, God didn't drop down a list and say, here, use these books. The church had to examine the books and recognize them and say, yes, these are books that we are going to include in our scriptures. That was a, a decision that the people of God made at a certain time in history. How do we know that they made the right decision? that they didn't forget books. Well, that's all part uh, of this inscripturation, this writing the scripture down. And it was, again, there to give us comfort, to know that, yes, we do have God's word for us. We're not going to discover a book sometime that you know drops a fourth member of the Trinity on us or takes one of them away. We have what's completely here, and it's all that we need. Again, that is to comfort the church and is to protect it against, it says, the corruption of the flesh and, ma flesh and mouths of Satan and the world. So they knew that there was going to be an, a corrupting influence in the word of God, that Satan was going to try to come in and, and change the word. Uh, distort it, uh, give us doubt about its veracity. And so writing it down and scripturating it is what gave us the comfort that those things wouldn't happen. And a good example of this, when you think of, of church heresies, um, what are the earliest church heresies that you think of? What's the first one that usually comes to mind? And, uh, well, let's go outside the apostles. You're talking about within the apostolic age. Outside, the apostles are dead. There's nobody alive to say, hey, you know, based on the authority that Christ has given me, this is right, that's wrong. The apostles, yeah, well, most people, what they think of is they think of the Arian controversy, right? The uh, Nicene Creed, the debate about whether Christ was God or not, the sub same substance of the Father. Those are sort of the, the uh, heresies that kind of loom in our minds when we go back as far as we can. And the fact of the matter is that they were not the first heresies. The first heresies, as you said, there are two of them. One was Gnosticism, and the other one was what's called uh, Marconianism. And both of these heresies dealt with the nature of Scripture. Again, we're talking about a time when it wasn't really nailed down yet what the New Testament was. They were still debating certain books, whether we should include them in the canon or not. And at that time, the devil in the world sent these two heresies called Marcionism or Marconianism and Gnosticism. Now, Marconianism was, uh, came from a man by the name of Marcion. I'm not sure if it's a hard C or soft C, so I may switch back and forth. Uh, Marconian. And uh, it was excommunicated about 144 AD, so going way back to the early church. And uh, what he believed was that the Old Testament God was not compatible with Jesus, Jesus' teaching. So the first thing he did was he did away with all of the Old Testament. 
Not a word of the Old Testament was included in his canon. Now, you guys, when I use the word canon, you know what I mean, right? Just the Bible. The canon is the rule. It's what we, just another term for the Bible. So all of that was basically shoved out, not part of the canon. Then he went through the Gospels, and he said, yeah, all the Gospels are, are wrong, too. Uh, well, he took Luke and wrote a new gospel, which is about 90% Luke, and that was his uh, gospel. Um, he used some of the Pauline epistles. I think he used everything but uh, the pastoral epistles, and I believe um, one other book, Ephesians. He didn't use Ephesians as well. That was not part of the canon. Uh, Hebrews wasn't a part of it. Revelation wasn't a part of it. None of the general epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, uh, Jude, none of those were considered scripture. So he had this very small one, single gospel that was pretty much carved up by him and other New Testament books that he did add and take from as well. He didn't just preserve them. So this was the very first heresy, a heresy to do what? To destroy to ruin, to corrupt the scriptures. Uh, then we had, as Christy said, another heresy called Gnosticism. Anybody know what Gnosticism tried to do? Exactly, exactly. More specific, what they did was they believed that when Christ, we know that there was a 40-day period between Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And we know that Christ was very active during that time teaching the disciples and teaching the people. He wasn't silent. Well, what the Gnostics claimed is that, well, we have the teaching that Christ taught during those 40 days. And we're revealing that to you. And uh, that superseded what was written in the what we call the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So they had this new scripture that they were going to promote and present. And this happened long before the Arian controversy. This happened um, in the, uh, the latter part of the second century. Um, Yeah, it sort of did the opposite of Marconianism. Uh, Mar Marconian removed scriptures where the Gnostics added scripture and also removing those scriptures that uh, didn't go along with their teaching. So get rid of the new old gospels, bring in these new gospels. And as you said, it was a secret teaching. It was a teaching that was hidden from the world. But if you came in and joined us, you could have these teachings. Um, you ever hear of the uh, Gospel of Thomas? This is often pulled out by the media as this forgotten, not forgotten, this rejected gospel that the apostles or the early church had all these gospels and for some unknown reason they chose these four gospels and rejected all these other ones as if the other ones were legitimate gospels but there was some uh, predisposition, some uh, negative presupposition that they had that caused them to reject these gospels. And uh, yeah, they were rejected but they weren't hidden gospels. The, the Writers of the New Testament, not writers, the people that, that formed the canon, that studied the canon and made those decisions, knew about these Gospels. They just rejected them for very good reasons. Um, now, when they looked at the scripture, looked at a book, uh, there, there were basically three attributes that the early church looked for to determine if a book should be included in the canon. Uh, the first one was the apostolic authority. Was it written by an apostle? And did it or maybe somebody closely associated with an apostle. Uh, we know that Luke wasn't an apostle, but Luke was very closely associated with Mark and Paul, so therefore it was, or actually Paul himself, so therefore Luke and Acts are considered as not being written by Paul, but having been approved by Paul in, in some way. Uh, 
the Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Now, some people say Paul did. I don't believe that. But there's a phrase in Hebrews, chapter, the end of chapter 1, where it says that, you know, or being in chapter 2, where it says that, uh, you know, we receive these things from those who first heard the gospel and give it to you. In other words, these are men who heard the gospel directly from the apostles and now are transmitting that gospel to you. These things that we teach are basically we're, we're conduits for the gospel, for the apostles. So they are not apostles, but they, he was very closely associated with the apostles. So again, that was the first thing. Does it have uh, some type of connection to the apostles, either directly or indirectly through an apostle uh, in that way? Uh, second, did it have uh, divine qualities? Did it have sort of the fingerprints of God? And this can be a bit subjective, but, but what they really meant what was, is it consistent with the rest of scriptures? You know, uh, if you read some of these other gospels, there's fairies, all these weird things that just don't appear in the rest of the Bible. There, there's talking animals, and we, we do have some of that in the Old Testament, but it's really strange things. It's not anything like that. Um, almost something out of a, a, a Lord of the Rings type atmosphere these books have. <clears throat> so does it have th these divine fingerprints? That, that, are they consistent with the other books of the canon? And corporate reception, was it received by the church universal? Was this something maybe a little corner of the world like, but nobody else received? So it had to have these three things, apostolic authority, divine qualities agreeing with the rest of scripture, and a, a recognition that by the church, yes, this is actually a canonical book. So those three things to some degree had to be there in order for a book to be accepted. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas was not written by an apostle or an associate. Uh, most scholars today believe it was written in the late second century. Uh, so it came much after any apostle could have had any influence on it. And that was very important. There was another book, we'll see more of this later, called The uh, Shepherd of Hermas, H-E-R-M-A-S. And um, it was a book that the church loved. I mean, they included this in their canon. It was sort of like an apocryphal book where it was in there, many of the scrolls that we have of the scriptures. It was read in their churches right along with scripture. Uh, it was, they preached from it. They taught from it. The church loved the Shepherd of Hermes uh, epistle. But they recognized that it came too late to be written by an apostle and ultimately rejected it. Even though, again, it was a book that they really liked, that they didn't find any other way inconsistent with the scripture, they still rejected it because it came after the apostle. It was too late for an apostle to have an influence on. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas was the same way. It just came too late to have any apostle have it be influenced. Uh, divine qualities. Many of these uh, Gnostic Gospels are polytheistic. Um, they, they don't have, they have Gnostic fingerprints on it. They don't have uh, divine fingerprints on it. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Rachel, that they were secret gospel. This is how the Gospel of Thomas begins. It says, these are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke. It says, moreover, the, 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 this continues, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. So there's that, that secret sense of, yes, this is hidden from the world, but we now, we're going to reveal it to you. We're going to show you, and you will never have death. Nothing like that is ever in the scriptures. The scriptures are open to everybody who reads them. There's a divine promise for help and blessing to understand them, not some secret hidden sayings that you have to join this group in order to discover. 
and corporate reception, it was never accepted by the early church, never even considered it. It's never found in any of the, the lists of canonical books that people wrote, people compiled. It, it's completely absent from any of those things. It's like the church really didn't even know this thing existed until the second or third century AD. So when the world uh, puts out, okay, the church w was prejudiced and not choosing these gospels, no, they, they knew what they were and they knew why they rejected it. And a man by the name of Irenaeus uh, wrote an attack on the, on the Gnostics. He wrote an attack on a guy named Valentius and directly and also in his book Against Heresies. And then the heresy here he's talking about is, is Gnosticism and Marconism. So he wrote against both of those and he says this, we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation. None others is the scriptures, the canonical scriptures that from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So that's the early church's view of why God inscripturated the, the words, the, the revelation, he handed them down to us in scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So Satan's first attack on the church was an attack upon the Bible. And that's why the writers of our confession say that writing it down is help the preservation of it guards against uncertainty, corruption of the flesh, malice, and Satan and the world. It says, therefore, continues, any questions before we move on? Okay, it says, therefore, this, we're going to end it here. The Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. There's debate uh, about whether the reformers were cessationists. We all know what a cessationist, right? Does God's revelation, is it ended? Is he done speaking to us directly through revelation? And uh, they'll try to argue that they, that they were. But it's pretty clear here that the former ways of revealing his will to his people has now ceased. It's over. Everything we have is in the scripture that we have. And imagine the consternation it would cause if, well, the Bible's not complete. God still has something to say to me. Uh, it's not everything I need. Where am I going to get that from? And how many charismatics I know who've opened themselves up to heresy with that very attitude, listening to people who claim to speak the scriptures, claim to speak new revelation, that turns them away from the scripture itself. So that is for the comfort, for the preservation of the church itself, that we know that all that we have, all that we need is contained in these pages. Again, former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. It, it's done. Any questions or comments? Yes. When you were talking about the importance of preserving the word, it remind I just read in um, in the Old Testament where King Josiah, like right at the end of Judah's existence, basically before they were exiled, when they found a book in the temple. Yeah, I know. And they had obviously read it in a long time, but he was distraught because he realized what was in it, but the importance of actually preserving and also maybe reading it. Exactly what happened if that was never preserved. And right. you get the impression it was just kind of thrown somewhere. Right. Somebody's going through a, like a chest of right. drawers, a, a junk drawer, and found it and said, oh, look at this. Yeah, it, it was uh, not protected. It was kind of thrown off to the side somewhere. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And they, they probably went for centuries without having that word. He was surprised. And it seems like everybody who heard it was surprised that we'd never, never heard this before. So even having forgotten it, 
what happened. So yeah, and, and it's and it, there's some hard things to, to understand too and to accept. Um, uh, and we'll see, again, we'll see more of this. For example, there there's two positions. Uh, one is King James only, and one is what's called the received text. Who believe that that we need to have every single exact word preserved by God. Uh, the received text takes what's called the Textus Receptus, which was the Greek text behind the uh, King James version, and uh, says this is the word of God. This is the only thing we need. Everything else is is excluded. Um, where there are other people who uh, I believe this, uh, who believe no, we can look at all these other manuscripts. And we, we have a basic Bible, but where it differs, we can find, you know, what, what the actual word is. For 99.9% .9 of the words, we know what they were, but these other, you know, small number, it, it may change the, the uh, you know, one sentence or two sentences. We, we can still go out to all the thousands of manuscripts and examine them and determine, for the most part, what the right word actually is. And there's very few passages that are in dispute about what the meaning of these passages are based on uh, varying texts. Again, we'll see more of that as, as we progress. But again, these people, they need an absolute certainty. And uh, so that they, they take these, what I think are erroneous positions and say, okay, it's, it's, the certainty is in this right here. And if you think about it, no, it, it's uh, right now we, we can actually carbon copy the Bible. And that really never happened until the printing press. If you go before the printing press, throughout all of church history, no two Bibles were the same. No, no Vulgates were the same. No Septuagints were the same. Why? Well, because they're hand copied. And you're hand copying hundreds of pages. So there's, there's going to be differences. There's going to be misspellings. There's going to be words left out. There's even ways that we can look at and figure out mistakes that they would make and categorize those mistakes. It's going to be there. And until the printing press, that, that never happened. There was never a, a standard text before the printing press. So uh, just that idea is more of a, a modern idea. But there's, you know, there's a lot of variants. For example, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, their Old Testament is the Septuagint. Um, the New Testament, that was the New Testament's church as well, the Septuagint. Well, there's, there's parts of Septuagint that aren't in the, the Hebrew text. There's a chapters in Jeremiah that are there in the early church's Bible that weren't in the, the Hebrew text. So there's all, all these odd things, but we still have to have confidence that, yeah, it is the word of God we have right now is the word of God, and we can determine what parts belong and what parts don't when there's a discrepancy. Any other questions or comments? Okay, we're about out of time. All right, so we're going we're to be looking more into this. We're going to be looking at what uh, the sufficiency means, what infallibility means. We're going to see how the text was preserved, how we can have confidence that it was preserved. Uh, what do we do when there are differences in texts? Uh, how do we handle those? How do we have confidence that, yes, this is God's word uh, without demanding photocopy reproduction of that work? To me, that's just, it, it, I have to commit intellectual suicide to believe that, yeah, up until, you know, the 1500s, uh, after Erasmus composed his text, that's the only time we ever really had trust in the Bible. Because if you listen to these men, that's what they say. Well, if we have to go back and have variances, then we just can't trust the Bible. Well, the church for 1,500 years had those variances, and they accepted it as the Word of God without doubting or wavering. So, okay, uh, we're out of time. Any more questions, you come up and, and talk. But we'll, uh, we'll have some time next week for questions below the beginning. Thanks for your attention. Appreciate you being here.